Welcome to the Johnny Martin Mental Health Care Podcast Series. I'm Kareen Marquardt, your host for today's episode. Our guest today is Lee Jordan, former Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer at Chevron. Lee graduated with a degree in National Security and Foreign Affairs from the U.S. Military Academy at West Point before serving five years in the U.S. Army as a logistics officer. During his over 15 years at Chevron, Lee led teams from diverse backgrounds and cultures as the VP of Business Development for Southeast Asia, VP for Commercial and Business Development for Indo-Asia, and most recently, Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer. Lee is a contributor to Harvard Business Review and Heart Energy, and he was recognized by Business Insider in 2020 as one of 100 people transforming business in North America. Lee retired from Chevron earlier this year and is now on the board of Pros Holdings and the nonprofit Search Homeless Services. He also co-authored a book with his father, From Shoeshine to Star Wars, a memoir chronicling some of the life experiences of his father, Walter Jordan. Lee, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thanks, Corinne. Did my mom write that bio? <laughs> Something she'd write. <laughs> Thanks so much. It's uh... impressive list and uh, really excited <laughs> to have this conversation with you today. Thanks so much. Thanks. Happy to be here. So to begin with, can you share a little bit with our audience? Tell us about yourself. Where did you grow up and what were you like growing up? <laughs> okay, sure. I think you covered it all. No. So I, I grew up actually in Southern California. Before that, I actually lived in Los Angeles. Born in Berkeley, lived in Los Angeles for about five years, and then moved to Roland Heights, California. And when we moved to Roland Heights, there were only five Black people in the entire town. And they were all in my family. And we had a really interesting experience growing up, my two brothers and I and our parents, but really didn't have any, any real challenges or difficulties because we were the only Blacks there. But we did learn how to adapt and assimilate. And so that's that maybe part of who I think I am today. But another thing I thought about is I've always been in leadership roles early on. And it's not that I thought of myself as a leader, but I thought of myself as someone who, if I saw something that needed to be done, I just did it. And I was thinking back as I was preparing for this podcast, started in third grade. It occurred to me there were kids coming to school that didn't have lunch money. And this is in the 1960s when lunch was, you know, 35 cents and some kids didn't have it. And so I would pull together a group of kids I knew had a little bit of change in their pocket. And we'd throw our money together and make sure kids had lunch money. And then I, you know, I went on to, I was president of our junior high class in, in eighth grade and captain of a gymnastics team and played sports and things like that, but continued, I think, to be in, in leadership positions again, not because I, I wanted to be a quote unquote, you know, air quotes leader, but I just, I always felt like if there was something that needed to be done, someone kind of needed to start doing it. And as I think through my life, I, I've had occasion to do that from time to time. I really appreciate this sense of leadership coming from just seeing a need and, and stepping in rather than looking for that uh, title. As we noted when introducing you, you served five years in the U.S. Army as a logistics officer. And so first of all, I want to sincerely say thank you for your service, but wanted to hear a little bit about what influenced your decision to go to West Point and serve as an officer in the U.S. Army. First, thank you. It was, it was an honor to serve, but I wish I could give you uh, a story of a deep-seated desire to serve my country at the time. And it was really more about an education. Academies are, are paid for by the government. I was a gymnast in high school. The gymnastics coach at West Point was a prolific recruiter. And so he basically sought me out and began to recruit me. And uh, as I looked into it, found it would be a fantastic place to, to have an education. I never really intended on, on making the military a career. And so you have a five-year obligation to serve after you graduate, which I did as a logistics officer. 
and then moved into civilian life and moved into uh, the energy business after that. But I've stayed connected to a lot of my, my classmates. Some went on and and made a career of it and retired. And so we've, we've shared some stories along the way. Uh, it was a great experience. I'd do it again, but I really just a, a good opportunity to get a, a great education. Yep. That makes a lot of sense. And a lot of our audience members are particularly interested in mental health. And so I'd love to hear a little bit from you and your experience or from what you observed from your peers. Can you talk a little bit about the state of mental health for our service members? Yeah, so it is a uh, it's an issue that's been recognized. I think for some time, you know, I think in the in the civilian world, mental health is is coming more and more to the forefront. But we've known about and heard about PTSD for a long time now. I still don't think we understand how it affects people enough. In fact, I just recently saw a, a post from a friend of mine on LinkedIn who was asked to be interviewed by a military magazine, and he was struggling with the idea of, of whether or not he would come out his term has come out with the fact that he was suffering from PTSD. And his concern was that his colleagues at work, he's a civilian now, his colleagues at work would view him differently if more and more of them knew about it. In fact, some did and made a comment, well, are you going to shoot us up now? Surprisingly, people made comments like that. And the point that he was making was that people can have, can be suffering from PTSD and you won't know it because they won't be, there are no outward signs all the time. It's not like what you see on TV or in the movies where people have all these behaviors that are evident to you, but they can still be suffering from it. And so I think it's just important for us to know that there are people not just with suffering from PTSD, but that have mental health issues that we just can't see. I think that your audience today is fortunate that this is something that is being addressed and discussed at the forefront as they enter careers. It's not something we talked about for many years. And in the military in particular, you talk about being tough and we think about being physically tough, but what comes along with that is the assumption that you're also mentally tough. And when you're physically tough, you don't complain about your aches and pains. So when you're mentally tough, you don't complain about how that's affecting you. And so people tend to keep those things to themselves. So I love that we're being more forthcoming about these issues now and trying to remove the stigma of talking about mental health, beginning with veterans, but expanding that now into the civilian world. And so I do have friends that, that suffer from it and continue to and will for the, for the rest of their lives. You said something there that particularly stuck out to me, this courage that is required for people to openly discuss their mental health, especially when they assume that others will think negatively of them. And so I really appreciate you bringing up the, the fact that there, there probably are a lot of people who are struggling with mental health challenges, different types who don't bring up their challenges with those around them. Yeah. One of the things my, my friend mentioned in his uh, article on, on LinkedIn is how he recognized that by him talking about it, it would empower others to do the same. And it's the power of vulnerability, right? People think people that are vulnerable are weak and don't have courage, but they're, they are frankly the most powerful and courageous people that we know, right? It takes a lot of courage to talk about issues you may have or weaknesses you may have, but if you can recognize that others have them and it empowers them to talk about it and deal with those things, that's a strength. And so I appreciate people that, that really lean into that space. I would like to pivot a little bit from your time in, in the army to your time to Chevron. Yes, yeah, so actually Chevron was the fourth energy company that I, I worked for four different companies in that, gosh, I guess almost 38 years now. I moved 10 times, tried to stay one step ahead of the law, which I've been successful at so far. But actually I, I left and joined the East Ohio Gas Company, Dominion Energy Company, you may have heard of Dominion. I worked for PG&E Energy Trading and El Paso Energy Trading before joining Chevron in, in 2003. Interestingly enough, when I worked for El Paso, 
we were going through the, some of the same things that Enron did in the early 2000s, but Enron was taking up all the headlines, fortunately, and so we didn't get a lot of that press. But while I worked for El Paso, during a two-year period, our stock fell from something like $74 a share to $4 a share because everything was just in, in free fall during that, the Enron time. And so I, I had some friends at, at Chevron, gave them a call and, and moved over to Chevron. I was doing business development work. You mentioned that I was uh, chief diversity officer. That was just the last three years, actually, of my um, tenure at Chevron. The rest of my career in the energy business was in the commercial and business development space. And so um, Chevron was a great place to, to have my final 18 years and a lot of great memories and, and great opportunities experience at Chevron. I would imagine that in your earlier work, when you were working in Southeast Asia and Indo-Asia, that you worked with incredibly diverse teams. And one of the topics that we had our case competition teams actually focus on in the semifinal round was around culturally competent care. So I'd love to hear from you a little bit around some of the experiences you had leading multicultural teams. Sure, yeah. So I was an expat. And, you know, we throw that term around like people know what it is. It's basically short for expatriate. And it means that you're living and working in a, in a foreign country. And um, when I moved, we moved to Thailand in 2005. I was 48 years old. And that's actually very late in life to to be a first-time expat. And what was interesting is for my wife, it was the first time she'd ever left the country at 48 years old. She'd never even been to Canada or Mexico. And so it was huge culture shock. And I'll tell you a real, real brief story, but she basically, when she landed in um, Thailand, you know, different sounds and smells and, and conversation, it was torrential rainfall. And we got to the, we got to the hotel we were in two cars. My uh, daughter and I were in the front car. She was 12 years old. My son and, and wife were in the back car. And we got to the hotel. I was standing in front of the hotel. And my son, who was riding with my wife, runs up to me and, and says the three words you never want to hear. Mom's not happy. She was just completely overwhelmed with where she was and what she had gotten herself into. We spent a few days in the hotel and we went to the house that I had, I had gone on an earlier trip and rented. The house was a 6,500 square foot, beautiful home, wooden floors, two story, had a pool in the back. It was on a lake. It was gorgeous. She hated the house because she hated everything. And it was just because she was going through a culture shock. Long story short, by the time we left, she said, we were there five years. She said, we need to think about retiring here. She loved it so much and just fell in love with the people. It was really because of the people there. But you know, in terms of my experiences at work, one of the things I recognized early on is that we were the minority there. And a lot of expats take on kind of a different persona because typically when you're an expat in a foreign country like that, you're in a leadership role. But I think it's important to recognize that you're the minority there and you're in their country. And one of the very first things I learned was the importance of trying to learn the language. I was in a meeting early on and there was a, an expat who had been there for a while and he spoke very good Thai. And I noticed the reaction of the Thais in the room to him was so positive and just so engaging and energetic and warm. I thought I need to learn to speak Thai. And a lot of expats didn't because a couple reasons. One, it's a very, it's a difficult language. It's, it's written in Sanskrit. And so you can't read it easily. It's not Latin based, but also, and I think a lot of times when we go to foreign countries, particularly Americans, everyone over there will speak English. They have to speak English. And so we just kind of fall back on that and don't learn the language. So it was important to do that. And they appreciated the fact that we made an effort to do so because so many did not. And so you're an expat first, your ethnicity is really second. It doesn't matter really if you're, if you're black or brown or whatever you are to them, you are an expat and you're in that group. And that's your persona. But it, and it was a very positive experience. They're very, again, warm and, and engaging society and culture. Enjoyed it very much. 
In terms of diversity, you know, you have to begin to understand different nuances there. In the U.S., we talk about diversity. It's, it's more around ethnicity and gender. In many other places around the world, it can be about hierarchy, where there's very specific hierarchy that defines who you are and how you relate to others. Gender is always an issue where you are. So it, it's important. It can be religion. It can be value systems. It can be societal diversity. So diversity is very different depending on where you are, what's happening in that region, their history and their culture. And so it's important to understand how they define diversity and for you to be able to address that and speak in terms and, and address their diversity challenges in, in ways that are important to them. That took some time to learn. It wasn't something that you first walk in. So that was a lot of fun to learn those things. Absolutely. And I think it's great that you really dug in and tried to learn what mattered to the people you work with. I'm curious to know when you thought about wellness or just general well-being or mental health for your team members, did you find that this looked different for different individuals or that what they needed support-wise looked different? I think it always does, Corrine. But, you know, to be honest with you, like I said in the beginning, you know, we haven't really been as focused on mental health needs as we are now. It was almost two decades ago when I moved to Thailand and and it wasn't at the forefront. I think just instinctively, I think I was relatively sensitive to individual needs. And I've always seen the need to, to meet people where they are. I think that's important across several different dimensions, but particularly as you talk about mental health. And so I think I was always attuned to understanding who could handle stress better than others, um, who can handle challenges better than others, who would need some assistance and, and who would not. And even though the mental health discussion is new, understanding your team as individuals is important as we talk about diversity. It's important to understand that everyone is different and to meet each individual, understand um, where they are. So I just I try to do that, I think, on a regular basis and get to know them and understand their needs as, as individuals. I really appreciate the way you reframed that because you're right. We, we use this term mental health like it's been a conversation point for decades. But I do think that leaders like yourself have been kind of attuned to individual needs, even if you weren't thinking about it in terms of mental health. And it's helpful to think about how you thought about it for your workers. The finalist teams in this particular case competition are being asked to consider mental health support and responsibilities when sourcing and working with diverse suppliers. I'd love to hear from you if you have any lessons learned from your time at Chevron that might help our teams in their final solutions. Yeah, you know, one comes to mind in particular. We had a very strong legal team at Chevron. Our general counsel was very attuned to helping us to create a more diverse and inclusive culture. And that's important. It's, you know, a lot of the, the DNI work, as it should, falls in the HR group, but equally as important is alignment from your communications group and from your legal team. And our, our legal team was one of those that, that really leaned into the space. One of the things they did is we work with a number of external firms. All large organizations bring external firms on that have expertise in certain areas. And so what our legal team did was create an award recognition if you will, for those that really leaned into diversity and inclusion. They looked at what kinds of programs they had. They looked at their demographics. They looked at how they would advance in diversity and inclusion in their communities, how they would lean into that and engage with communities in that space as well. And every year they would recognize one, one firm and hold them up as a model of how you can advance diversity and inclusion in the legal space. So that's something I'd like to, to see more of, I think, to organizations to lean into extending the work that they do, particularly large organizations, you typically have more resources and capital to do to make progress in this space. And some of the smaller firms do not. But if they 
demonstrate that it's important, if large organizations demonstrate that it's important to vendors and suppliers, then they will lean in as well. So that's, I think, what our, what our legal group did is a good way to, to accomplish that. I love that example. And it actually tees me up nicely for the, the next area of conversation, which is your work in diversity and inclusion with Chevron. So before we get into some of the specific work that you did in this role, I would love to hear a little bit about how you came to, to be a leader in diversity and inclusion. Sure. It wasn't on my career path. It wasn't on my career development plan ever. I, um, I had been working, gosh, I want to say 39 years before it became something of interest to me. And what happened was I had moved, I had recently come out of Indonesia as our uh, vice president of commercial and business development for Chevron. And I moved into an organizational capability role where essentially Chevron assigns you to a role where you would facilitate the movement of of senior managers from your specific function into roles around the globe. And so I would place senior level managers, GMs, et cetera, directors into positions around the world. And because I was in that role, which is an adjunct to HR, I was privy to some information that others were not. And I had asked for a report to be run by our analyst that, and the results of that report, which basically had to do with the probability of being considered high potential or future leader, the results of this report, and I won't go into detail exactly what it said, but it was frankly so disheartening to me that I packed, it was two o'clock in the afternoon and I packed up my, my bags and I went home. And uh, I got home about uh, three o'clock and I walked in the house and uh, my wife said, what the hell are you doing home? And I explained it to her. And she said, oh, she said, so what are you going to do about it? And I thought, yeah, because I don't have another job. I'm not really quitting. But I was just, I was very discouraged at, at that point. And it was a time in my career, I was already one of the more senior African-American managers at Chevron. And the results of the report affected me very negatively. And I thought, well, how would others feel if they saw this, this data as well? And so I went back the next day and I began looking into what Chevron was doing in the diversity and, and inclusion space. And the good news was, is that we were doing a lot more than we were talking about. I mentioned legal and HR being a, an important part of advancing a, a diverse and inclusive culture. The third leg of that is, is communications. And in that space, I didn't think we were doing enough to talk about how we were really leaning into diversity and inclusion and some progress that we were making there. We're making quite a bit in different areas of the organization, but it wasn't consistent enough and it wasn't talked about enough. And so I began doing some work in that space. And then I'd say it was a year and a half or so down the road when the, the chief diversity and inclusion officer position came open. And I really hadn't even thought about it then, but someone mentioned to me, and said, hey, I think you'd be good in this space. Why don't you throw your hat in the ring? And I did and was selected for the position. And it was the best move I ever made because it was very fulfilling and we were able to continue to build on the good work that Chevron had already done. We were able to continue to build on that the last three years that I was there. I think it's a great reminder to all of us that oftentimes we're called into leadership roles that we hadn't necessarily planned in our you know, five-year, 10-year career plan. Sometimes we're really called to, to step up when we have a voice that's really important in the conversation. I think it's really interesting that you brought up your inspiration for taking on this role. Chevron, for our listeners, has been recognized for its commitment to diversity and inclusion for quite a few years now. And some of the examples here, Chevron received a 100% rating on the Human Rights Campaign Corporate Equality Index for the past 17 years. 
And for those unfamiliar with this index, it's an index that ranks U.S. companies' commitments to lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender workplace equality. Chevron is also consistently included in the National Business Inclusion Consortium top U.S. companies for its diversity and inclusion. And I think there's a lot to celebrate there. I'd love to hear a little bit from you where you think there was a disconnect between a pretty verbal commitment to diversity and inclusion, but then what you were seeing in this report or what you were seeing on the ground. It's such a broad space to work in. There's always going to be work to do. There's always going to be a disconnect. There's always going to be opportunities to do more. And so I could talk for a long, long time about where there are gaps. But when I talk about diversity and inclusion, I really like to talk about four things. I'd like to talk about what an organization is doing well, because if you don't do this the right way, you can always be talking about what needs to be fixed. And it can be discouraging to those that have worked so long to try to make things better. And so I like to try to start. The, so the four things are talk about what an organization is doing, talk about opportunities to improve, talk about what we're doing to improve those opportunities. And then lastly, try to leave the audience with things that they can do to advance the conversation. I'm glad you started with the LGBTQ community when talking about Chevron, because there are a lot of firsts that, that Chevron was involved in. And one of those was in the 90s, Chevron became the first oil and gas major to provide benefits to same-sex couples. And this is back in the 90s when some organizations, you couldn't even come out and say that you were gay. You could be fired. And there was no protection for that. But Chevron was one of the first to lean into that space. And they have just continued to build from that. And that's why they're up to, I don't know, 17 years running now of, of having that 100% recognition by the HRC. And so Chevron has continued to make significant progress there. While at the same time, the second item I mentioned, areas of opportunity, areas to improve. So as we've measured demographics, and I'll talk just in the US right now, as we look at demographics, actually I'll talk globally, representation of women has been flat for, gosh, probably seven, eight, nine years, it has not increased the representation of women at Chevron. Representation of African-Americans slash Blacks has not increased in, you know, I can tell you at least the last uh, seven or eight years. Asian-American representation and Hispanic slash Latin American representation has increased, making good progress there. But those are two areas, women and Blacks, that Chevron needs to make up ground. You know, I could go on and on and talk about a lot of those things. But the good thing is that Chevron can talk about that because they're being transparent about those numbers. The numbers, those trends I shared with you are public. And so they can have that conversation. I, I really like that you you start in thinking about what a company is doing well, and then you start to focus on opportunities. In your time with Chevron, can you give us an example of an improvement that you saw? And if you're able to speak to some of the steps that were taken to, to lead to that? Sure. One thing I like to talk about, and this is recent after I came into the job was, and I'll talk specifically about the Black community. And you'll hear me use the term Black and African American interchangeably. And just so people know, as a tip, it, it's a preference. And it's okay to ask people what their preference is. For me personally, I like the term chocolate awesomeness. And I'd like that to be used <laughs> on a regular basis, but that hasn't really caught on yet. And so what I noticed early on when I, when I came to the job is that we were being transparent about our demographic information, but we're lumping all minorities together. In our annual CSR report, social responsibility report, we shared and we have shared for years, at least a decade or more, the representation of women and representation of minorities as a group. But when I came into the job, I recognized that not, as I said to you, not all minorities were actually increasing representation. And so one of the first things I did is say, hey, we need to disaggregate this data and share that publicly so people understand we need to have some focus on this and increase representation of Blacks as well. And we were able to do that. And we actually, we were the first 
oil and gas major to publicly share this aggregated data in that format. And we've done that. We did that in 2019 and others have followed suit and done that as well. And that's a big deal. It's a big deal for so many reasons. One, you know, some organizations are afraid to do that because it's not always good news. But here's the thing. Your employees already know. They already know that. And, and I was a bit concerned when we shared it, but the reaction was, look, we already knew that, Lee. Now we're glad the corporation is saying that out loud and we're doing things about it. And so I think as organizations get through that fear of sharing that data, they'll find it's very positive and now they can act on it. So that's the big change that's happening really all over, not just in our industry, of course. All organizations now are being more transparent about that data. And once you know what the data looks like, then you can align on what needs to be done. There's so much power in transparent data, and I really appreciate that you push for disaggregated data. It's a big point in the Asian American community as well, because the challenges felt by certain Asian American communities are very different from those felt by others. I think it's it's really important that you push for this and brought it up in this conversation as well. We're, can you speak? I just talk about the Asian community for a minute, because there's a very specific metric that Chevron uses now that we got from ASCEND, and the acronym ASCEND, but essentially it's a it's an organization that looks at the advancement of Asian Americans. And they came up with a ratio that looks at not just overall representation, but how are each of these affinities doing moving up in the ranks, right? So it's not just about how you look overall, but but are we breaking through the, the glass ceiling and the bamboo ceiling and, and things like that? And it's important because I think one thing we've found across the board is that Asian Americans generally are not moving up in, in organizations as much as they should be, even as much sometimes as Blacks and Hispanics. And, and so I think that's something that needs to be called out and recognized for organizations not to just look at the overall representation of a group growing, but look at how they're moving into those more senior positions as well. I'm glad you brought it up because I know that's also a challenge in a lot of organizations with women in leadership is that you'll see roughly even representation at lower levels, and then it becomes challenging for organizations to promote women into leadership positions. I also would love to hear, you brought up disaggregation of data, but when you started your role as a chief diversity and inclusion officer in 2018, what were some of the other top priorities on your mind? So I'll talk a bit more about, about metrics and data. One main thing was to get that data, more granular and detailed data in the hands of leadership in ways that they could act on it. And so, excuse me, one thing we did was we instituted dashboards, which basically was gave our leaders access to demographic information for their specific operation, for their specific business unit, if you will, that allowed them to look at things like attrition rates and promotion rates and hiring rates and all those things specific to them and to break that data down by affinity. And what was important about that is we didn't just give them that data, we then said, look, these are some specific questions you need to ask while looking at that data and then use that to inform what, what your plans and strategies look like to advance a more diverse, inclusive culture in your organization. And so we instituted some work around dashboards to make them useful and effective. Another program that just started uh, this year as, as I was leaving was a, a sponsorship program. And sponsorship, you hear about sponsorship and mentorship. Mentorship means someone's talking with you sponsorship means someone's talking about you and they're advocating for you and they're looking for opportunities, specific opportunities, projects and things to, to move you up, to move you forward, to give you a leg up, to provide some tailwinds for you. And what you'll find is that almost every organization has an informal sponsorship program. And what that means is I find someone that I'm comfortable with that I want to bring along 
and I do that. And but because likes, because humans have natural biases to be attracted to people that are like them. And because most organizations in the West in particular, white males are at the top, the sense is that white males are the ones that are getting the sponsorship. And so what Chevron is in the process of doing now is formalizing the process, uh, formalizing a sponsorship program. So they're creating a cohort of sponsorees that look like what they want their leadership to look like in the future. And so that's a program that we launched so that these high performing individuals now will have sponsors that do those things, that advocate for them, that provide opportunities for them, that provide not just mentorship, but sponsorship. So those are just a couple of examples of things that, that Chevron is doing to, to, to address those in underrepresented groups. I think it's great that Chevron is putting in place organizational programs to address this issue. But the I really like this example. And one of the reasons I like it is that leaders in all organizations can really make their own individual choices in moving the needle here. I actually had a really great mentor in an organization I worked with in the past who, when he had individuals who looked like him reach out and ask to be sponsored or mentored by him, he would say, I only sponsor underrepresented individuals, but let me connect you with a fellow leader mm. of mine Excellent. who is a woman or a person of color, and they would be a great sponsor for you. And so helping to connect people to see those different perspectives and also lift people up who may otherwise not have those natural sponsorship opportunities. Excellent. Excellent. I like also that he was matching those folks up with people that didn't look like them as well. So they get that, that cross learning right across those different affinities. Exactly. When I think about creating a culture of inclusion and belonging, which are so important to diversity and inclusion, one of the things that comes up in my mind is psychological safety. And so I'd love to hear from you what that looks like promoting psychological safety in a company as large as Chevron. I would imagine that it can be challenging. It, it is. It's Psychological safety is, you know, it's frankly like mental health in general is something that has just now come into the forefront. And I would have to say that Chevron, like many large organizations, is just learning how to do that and how to do that well. Things that I've, so I do some writing, we'll talk a bit about that, and it talks about how to be an inclusive leader and, and kind of speaks to the psychological safety aspect of that. And I've, in that, and I'll give you a little peek into the article, I created a, an acronym, F-L-A-V, FLAV, and, and it stands for Feedback, Listening, Authenticity, and Vulnerability which are the four things I, I think you need to create that, that psychologically safe space as a leader. If you are providing feedback, both, both constructive and reinforcing, if you're providing that active listening, people know that you're really hearing what, what they're saying, that you're valuing what they're saying. Uh, that's important. That you're able to be authentic, right? The A, that you're able to be authentic. I think being able to demonstrate your own authenticity allows them to demonstrate theirs as well, particularly when, when it's difficult. If you can demonstrate your authenticity when it's difficult to do, that's, that's a game changer. And then vulnerability, we talked earlier about the strength of being vulnerable. If you can demonstrate vulnerability as a leader, then that also creates a psychological safety. So, so those are some things that I, I think people can use as leaders to check themselves. Am I doing those four things? And if so, then you're moving towards creating a more psychologically safe space. I like that a lot. You mentioned being a leader, and I would imagine that being an executive at a large and global company like Chevron there are potentially times where you have the power to speak up for marginalized communities or other issues that you care a lot about, and it may not feel like the right time or place to do so. And I would love to hear, especially being in a role like a chief diversity and inclusion officer, I would imagine that there are times when people really call on you to speak up on different issues. How did you think about when it was the right time to use your role and platform 
to speak up on issues and when it was the better to not speak up in that moment. Yeah, I just, I'm a slow learner. <laughs> so I always thought it was a good time to speak up. And particularly when I was advocating for, it's always easier to advocate for someone else than it is to advocate for yourself. Because when you're advocating for yourself, it can come across as self-serving. Whereas when you're advocating for someone else, they can't pin that on you and you're speaking up for someone. And so I, I did that whenever I could. And there were times I would receive pushback. There were times when I wanted to lean forward and be a little bit more aggressive in terms of our messaging and things that we're doing and how to address issues. And other senior leaders were not as comfortable with that and they would push back on that. And sometimes I won and sometimes I lost. But I think the more we do that, the more people get comfortable with having those conversations. And it's okay to lose. It's okay. I mean, you're not going to win all the time. It's okay to, to continue to push that envelope. I think you always have to lean into that. I got a lot of my my reinforcement from, again, the writing I did. I began in the role with writing a monthly newsletter, but it became something more than just a typical corporate monthly newsletter. You'd never find buzzwords on it. And I would try to speak from the voice of the affinity that I was writing about at that time. And so each month it would be something different. Uh, the first month it happened to be Black History Month. It was in February of I don't know, 2019. And then April, I can't remember exactly what it was, but the month after that, I think was Asian American Pacific Month. And then March before that, sorry, was uh, International Women's Day. And so each month I would write about something different, LGBTQ community, veterans, et cetera. I wrote about the majority one month. What are the challenges the majority faces as we talk about diversity and inclusion and where do they fit in and how can they feel comfortable and things like that? So the response of feedback I would get from those encouraged me to do more of it. And some, some of the most positive feedback I got was from those saying for the first time, remember, never forget a note I got from someone in the Philippines who said, for the first time, I feel like my community, my culture is being heard and has a voice. Because what I would do is I would recognize leaders from that culture and that community in the newsletter and say, you know, so-and-so is from the Philippines and here's what they've done, here's what they're doing and here's their experiences, things like that. So I think whenever you can, you should. Don't check yourself. Someone else will do that. <laughs> Let them do that. I think that's really powerful. And I I'd love to tease this out a little bit more. Can you talk about some of the, like how you push back from fellow leaders within your organization, maintaining a unified front, potentially, maybe that's important, maybe it's not. And when was that important to you? And when was it not as important and you felt the need to speak out? Yeah, you know, you still have to, I mean, you never want to make anyone, anyone look bad. And so the pushback was usually done, quite frankly, behind closed doors. If there was, uh, there was an issue once that that I thought needed to be addressed more publicly. And the communications group felt we needed to be more conservative with that. And we went to a, a more senior tiebreaker on it, if you will. And so we settled on how it would be managed behind those closed doors because it doesn't do us any good to, to show that we're not aligned. And sometimes you just have to swallow that and just move forward with it as opposed to, to making someone look bad or say, so I want to do X, but so-and-so wanted to do Y. That doesn't help. So you just have to continue to then move on to the next fight because there's always going to be one and then maybe come back to that later. You know, other pushback I would get sometimes, I would write about our LGBTQ community. And I remember writing once about that, got pushback from, from a couple employees that their religion, their faith did not allow them to support what they called that lifestyle. And so, and my response was, we treat every, we value everyone. What you do outside of Chevron um, is what you do outside of Chevron. But within these four walls, this is how we treat people. This is how we respect people. This is how we value people. And it was in our value statements at, in the corporation. So I can always just point to that and say, this is how we treat people. And we'll continue to do that. And so you just, you'd have to just educate people in that space. 
without pushing back on their faith, they can still have their faith, but within these walls, we'll respect and treat people the same way. I really appreciate that you brought up some of the challenges with having different viewpoints and balancing how you respond to different viewpoints within a large organization like Chevron. I had one other question around your role being a leader at Chevron, and I would love to hear how you thought about navigating this issue as a leader at Chevron. There's a conversation in different communities around large oil companies and their role in climate change and pollution and how those impacts can disproportionately impact communities of color. And I want to hear your thoughts on this and how you navigated this being a leader at Chevron. Yeah, it's a great question because it, it comes up a lot. You know, what I'll tell you is that people in underrepresented groups and mainly Hispanics have been pushed into areas of our great nation that are much less attractive than others. And, and it was done by a collective effort, by laws, you know, codified laws that restricted where you could live and where you could go to school and things like that. And there are you know, lots of books out that, that talk about how that happened and where that happened. And because of that, what you're going to find is that a lot of those communities are around places like refineries and things like that. And so the choice then, since that has been done, is either to stop producing the energy that we need or do it in as safe, reliable, and effective way as we can. And that's the focus of Chevron's peers and others in the industry. They take that work very seriously. And the reason for that is because that's where their workers come from. These are responsible people. They care about the environment. And it's something that is always on the mind of leaders at Chevron. They also invest very heavily in those communities. There's a refinery in Richmond, California, for example, and there's a program called the Richmond Promise, where if you live within the city of Richmond and you graduate from high school, then you get a scholarship from Chevron. You get money from Chevron if you graduate. And we've donated millions of dollars to that community just for people making it past high school and, and into college. And that's something, quite frankly, that, that oil and gas companies don't talk about enough of the money that they invest in communities around them to make them as safe as they can. And a lot of that is on them. It's on, I think, the oil and gas industries to talk more about the good work that they do in that space. So hopefully that helps. That is really helpful. Thank you for answering some, you know, potentially tough questions there. <laughs> Want to pivot a little bit from your role with professionally and at Chevron to just learning a little bit more about Lee, the chocolatey awesome person that you are. <laughs> so <laughs> I uh, know that you retired earlier this year. So uh, first of all, congratulations. How Thank is retired life treating you? It is underrated. I tell you what, it's the most awesomeness. So uh, yeah, I, I was about two weeks in, I woke up one, one morning and I said to my wife, I slept through the night, which is something I just never did. And so you know, just getting all the work off my mind has been fantastic. I play a lot of golf. My wife and I are looking forward to traveling more when COVID is over. She's a big sports fan. And one of the things we're doing is we're going to go around different stadiums around the country and, and see the teams that we like. We're looking to get back to, to Europe and Asia. So I'm just, I'm absolutely loving it. I'm also, as you know, um, doing a little board work to keep the hamster running a little bit and uh, doing some, you know, volunteer work as well and a little bit of consulting in the DNI space. So I'm busy, which is important to do when you retire, but I'm absolutely loving, loving retirement. Thanks for asking. I really, I love that you're sleeping through the night. And I think it's actually for our audience who's really interested in mental health, sleep is a really important component to mental health. I think it's great that you brought up the value of sleep there. We mentioned at the very beginning of our episode that you are a co-author on the book From Shoeshine to Star Wars. I read the book. I really enjoyed it. I recommend that our audience check it out. Want to hear, before we talk about the actual learnings from the book, what was it like working with your dad on that co-writing process? I tell you what, Karine, it was fantastic. I was so fortunate 
to be able to do that. So my dad passed away. You don't see that in the book. He passed away six months after we released the book. His, his lymphoma came back. And so I was so fortunate to be able to spend that time with him and learn things that I did not know about him before. The title, first of all, just for the audience from Shoeshine of Star Wars, he was a, a shoeshine boy during the Great Depression. He was about nine years old. And he finished his working life working in the State Department on Ronald Reagan's nuclear defense Star Wars program. And he would go to boys and girls clubs and he would do a presentation and talk about his life. And the, and the title of the presentation was From Shoeshine to Star Wars to encourage them to say, hey, you can get out of the situation you're in. You can become something. And here's what I did. So it was just it was a fantastic opportunity to just sit down and listen to him. And I heard so many stories, things I never knew about him, challenges that he had that I never knew of before. There's some things in there. I won't, I won't steal it, but I won't give it away in case some folks want to read it. But there's some things in there that I learned about that I never, I never knew the challenges that, that he had before I got to sit down and, and do that with him. Absolutely. It was really eye-opening to me to read just one person's account of what it was like being a Black man growing up in the Great Depression of America. It's, it was some really great stories and really funny also. I'm curious, I know you don't want to give too much away, but was there (laughs) maybe one thing that you want to share that surprised you the most from the stories that your dad shared? The thing that surprised me the most, I guess I'll say, is that he was so down on his luck after he had done well, well into his 40s, that he was maybe a car ride away from being homeless and didn't, in fact, didn't have a car at the time, was hitchhiking. He was hitchhiking to coach us, my brothers and I, on our Pop Warner football team. And I didn't, I had no idea he was struggling that much. And he never let on that he was. And it just showed the strength that he had. So I get choked up thinking about it. But that's uh, that's my dad. I, I really appreciate you um, sharing it with the world and, and being willing to talk a little bit about it now. Talking about the you know, other half of your writing experience, you mentioned earlier that you really enjoy writing articles for different publications and different sites. How do you think about really excited to write about in the near future that you haven't had a chance to write about yet? So I'm getting lots of encouragement to write a book in the DEI space. I've found a way to talk about different things that really hit home with people. And so I'm just, I'm kicking around perhaps writing a book about that just to make it easier for people to have the conversation, I guess, is what really excites me. And an article, the article I wrote for Harvard Business Review was on privilege and it laid out a way to, to talk about privilege that doesn't leave people being defensive. And it talks about the reasons you want to have that conversation. Part of that came from an article I wrote when I was still at Chevron. And some of the one piece of great feedback I got back was from a a white male who said, hey, I I saw the title of the article and I said, oh, oh, here we go again. And by the time I got through, I felt really good about the privilege that I have. I felt good about talking about it, why it's important to talk about it. So I I enjoy being able to, to give people a way to have a conversation in a way that they hadn't had it before, and for that conversation to be constructive. And I hope to write a book at some point, I'm being a little lazy and retired right now, but at some point that steps into that more and steps into conversations in DNI and allows people to have good constructive conversations about why it's important and why it shouldn't feel threatening to those that feel threatened by the DEI uh, conversation. I hope you do get a chance to write that book and I'll look forward to reading it when you do. Thanks. Thanks, Green. I got one sale in the book. (laughs) (laughs) You can count on one sale. That's right. Growing up as an African-American man, are there things that you think we can do better as a society to promote mental health or just wellness in general in communities of color? I'm going to broaden it a little bit because I think the most important thing we can do 
across the board and particularly in communities of color is to understand each other better, to do our homework, to do some reading, to, to pick up a book and just understand other people's perspectives. And what I'm talking specifically about, I think, is the Black experience. People will say to me, hey, you know, slavery ended a long time ago. Why are we talking about it now? You weren't a slave and I, my, I wasn't a slave slaveholder. And why are we talking about this? And it's important for people to understand that although slavery ended in essentially in 1865, there were laws that continued to keep the, the sense of slavery in place for a long time and, and kept African-Americans disadvantaged for a long time in ways that it still continues and still affects us into today. And I'll just give you one example, and that would be in the NFL. There was a, a process called race norming that was used until June 2020 to, to determine how much a player would get as a result of a concussion, how much a health benefit they would receive as a result of concussion. They looked at black players differently than they looked at white players up until June 2020, 2021. And it took a lawsuit to stop them from doing that. So there are things in place in the book I'm in the middle of reading now called The Color of Law, which talks about what happened in the real estate space that kept us segregated and gave us substandard housing and created ghettos and created substandard education and all those things. So that book is there. Another one that's, that's easier to read, The Warmth of Other Suns, I would recommend reading. And so I think what people can do in general is just to take the time to really learn and understand and educate themselves around different perspectives and what people have gone through and what can still be impacting them today, not just the Black community, but, but in all communities. I did some of that as uh, in my role as CDIO that really helped me understand other perspectives that I, I thought I understood, but I, but I didn't. I really like that. And you mentioned that <laughs> in your retirement, you've really enjoyed getting sleep. I imagine that being a leader of a global company like Chevron, there are a lot of things that get thrown on your plate, a lot of responsibilities. Are there things that you found helped you in your mental health or wellness when you were working full time? Mental health and wellness was something I completely ignored until it was too late. <laughs> Just after George Floyd's murder, you know, I became the, the focal point for all of that conversation. And I really wasn't prepared for it. I heard from people that thought we were doing too much. People thought we weren't doing enough. But the main thing that impacted me was if you're from an underrepresented group, and, and I, I know your ancestry is, is Vietnamese, I believe you mentioned, and you're a woman. And so you, I'm sure you've experienced discrimination, headwinds, et cetera. We're all familiar with our own stories, but we've all had some, some example of that. But we don't hear everyone else's stories because we don't talk about it all the time. We talked about it all the time. That might be all we talk about. But after George Floyd's murder, these stories started coming out. And I started being the focal point of a lot of these stories, started hearing a lot of these horrible things that were happening to people in the communities, at work, everywhere. And at one point it became so overwhelming. I was on the phone with my, with my boss and she said, you need to take time off. You need to just stop what you're doing. You need to take a week or two, whatever you need, and just take time off. And I, in, in fact, that week I had that Monday, I had a meeting with our chairman. She said, I'm taking that meeting. You're not you're taking time off. And that was the first time I, I really realized that, that how much it's on and didn't have an outlet to address it. And she thought I was going to have a nervous breakdown. I didn't, fortunately. I took that time and, uh, and I needed that time. And so what I tell others, I, tell, I talk to CDIOs that are coming into the job. I tell them the most important thing that you can do is to look out for yourself. Look out for you. Take that time you need. Have people you can talk to. Have some sounding boards. 
um, that you can share these things with. We have communities of CDIOs that, that have gotten together and we share ideas and thoughts and challenges that we dealt with. So I didn't I didn't do it like I should. And I learned that a bit too late. But it's something I, I encourage everyone to do is just is that is an area where you want to check yourself. I really appreciate that you had, you know, fellow leaders who encourage you to take that time when you need it and that you listened to them and took the time um, because as <laughs> this brings us back to the beginning of the episode, it's really hard to ask for time when you need it or to express when you need additional help. And, you know, it's so important. And especially in leadership roles, oftentimes we feel like we have a responsibility to, to put our own needs aside for the good of the teams we're leading. And so I really appreciate you bringing up that example. You know, now in your retired life or otherwise, we'd love to hear what are some of the things that bring you joy in life? You know, spending time now just with my wife watching sports. I'm so I'm a lucky guy because she loves she loves sports. She could when we first got married, she could name more um, Heisman Trophy winners than I could, and so we do a lot of that and we enjoy that together. I play a lot of golf. I would really be at the top of my list if I could do it more. I'd be seeing my grandkids because that's always a joy, but I, I don't do it enough to say I, that's a daily bringer of joy. But whenever I, I do, I, I get to see them. I love it. I love the video calls with them as well. I enjoy writing. I'm continuing to write now, and I will get to that book at some point. So those are things I think that, that bring me joy. Many of our audience members are students, and so I'd love to hear, do you have any additional advice for our listeners as they think about the next steps in their careers, professional lives, even for those who aren't students, we're all constantly thinking about our next steps in life. Yeah, I mean, your last question, right? Think about what brings you joy in life and make sure you make time to do that first and foremost. Don't let life pass you by and, and have regrets about things you didn't spend enough time doing would be one thing. From a work perspective, be, be great at something. If you're just coming into the workforce, at some point, figure it out what you want to be great at and be known for that. I mean, do a lot of other stuff as well, but have something that, that you're known to be the person that is really, really good at that. Say yes to opportunity. Stretch yourself. I found so many times throughout my career, I would just say yes to things I wasn't 100% sure that I could do. I would step outside my comfort zone. And those turned out to be the best opportunities that I ever had. So continue to do that. What I'll tell you is that life begins at the end of your comfort. Step out of that comfort zone and do those things. And in fact, I did a poem here recently, a spoken word poem. You'll, you can find it on LinkedIn. And it begins with, what would you do if you weren't afraid? And just talks about that. So if you get a chance, take a listen to that and hopefully you'll hopefully enjoy it. Well, Lee, thank you so much again for joining us on this episode. I really enjoyed the conversation and really appreciate you taking the time, especially in your, your precious retirement time. <laughs> Thanks so much, Karina. Really enjoyed it. It's been great. Thanks so much. This episode of the John E. Martin Mental Health Care Podcast miniseries. This miniseries is part of the Here at Haas podcast. We welcome you to tune into other Here at Haas episodes to hear about different happenings across the Berkeley Haas community. We know that everyone is in a different stage in their own mental health journey, and that's okay and even beautiful. Please be kind to those around you, and we encourage you to care for yourself in the way that feels best for you. We hope you enjoyed our show and welcome you back soon.